Welcome to the Cave of Solitude, your comic book and pop culture podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony. This is episode 262, An Evening with Jim Zub. Jim's up. Thank you for coming back to the Cave of Solitude. It was a real treat to be able to uh, to host my first panel at a fan expo with you. It was something I'll never forget. And you were so easy to have as uh, thanks, as a guest. Yeah, you were just. I said, I asked. I said, "This is Jim's up, everybody," and you just went with it. It was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I. You know, I enjoy the convention stuff. It's been so long you know, since I'd been to one, like almost two years. And so it was kind of nice just to kind of get back into it and, and see some friends and, and do a little bit of the social thing. So, yeah. Do you, do you have any more um, conventions that you'll be attending maybe uh, outside of the country or have you, have you left Canada since everything happened? I know that that was your first con, but you said that you had right. traveled to, was it in Europe somewhere to England? No, so I would originally I was going to be going to England, okay. but it didn't end up happening because of all the pandemic stuff. I have done one trip, so I've been to the U.S. once for a, a signing event I did for a, a shop. Um, that was just me kind of dipping my toe in the water and sort of seeing how, honestly, how the travel stuff was going to work. And I'm sort of now just trying to look at you know the possibilities for 2022 and. Uh, there's a couple possible conventions on my docket, but just not trying not to push things too fast, trying to just, you know, make sure that I feel comfortable and, uh, you know, see how things go. That's kind of where my head's at with it. Yeah. Fair enough. I know that you, uh, you've expressed that you're a pretty avid traveler, uh, Japan. I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Japan being one of those places you love. So when, when you get free time and you don't have to travel for work or for a con, and you and your wife can go somewhere that you want to go to. Where are you guys traveling to? I mean, we definitely want to get back to Japan. We'd love to visit friends in in the UK. Okay. Those were kind of on our original, you know, itinerary for 2020 uh, yeah. back in the day, and all that kind of folded up. So it would be nice to get back to it. It would be nice to see the people that we had intended to see. And you know, it's never going to be the exact same as what we'd intended, but just yeah kind of touching base with those people and you do zoom calls and you, you, you know, you reach out to people over email, but it's not the same. Right. So there's something very, very nice about having those personal experiences. So try not to try not to rush it, but also eager, you know, once things turn the corner, hopefully we can really take advantage of it and, and, and get back out there. I think that's sort of where our heads are at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Me too. Me and my wife, uh, we really miss being able to, you know, we don't have any children. So I say, right. to, I say to her, you know, if we're not going to have kids, let's live like it. You know, we, we have right. a dog, right. we have a pet, but that's easy to find a, a, uh, what's a, a boarding place to put them where they can play with sure. other dog, whatnot. But not being able to do those things, you start to feel it. Even just the, the ability to, to unwind and relax, it, it starts to really catch up to you. It's nice to be in, you know, at home and be kind of forced in a way to shut down because there's nothing happening outside. But right. at the same time, I think all of us have used it as a way to sort of reevaluate yeah. some of the things in terms of how we use our time and what our priorities are. Sure. And that's, 
that's valuable, you know, and to, I've, I've heard that from a lot of freelancers. They're like, oh, you know, when work slowed down, it gave them some time also to reevaluate and kind of go, okay, these are the things I like about my job or the way I've been doing it. And these are things that I want to change in the future. So, you know, obviously the overall is, has been difficult, but I think in some ways it has shaken people up for the better or given them some reasons to think about, you know, what they want uh, as they move forward. Yeah, for sure. I want to get back to uh, Japan in a little bit, but I've got like a setup where I do this thing with my wife when I podcast with her where I either ask her like this or that questions or like a 21 question sort of thing because the thing I love about talking to you is you're you're one of us. You're one of the fans who is like living out our dream. So I want to get okay. into the fan of Jim Zub as well as sure. the, the writer. So oh, That's pretty easy. That, <laughs> I'm I know. into all kinds of stuff. So. <laughs> that's why it's going to be fun. But one thing I wanted to ask you that you always mention when you tell your story, you talk about your brother Joe, who yeah. you really, really looked up to. He was like your hero, that quintessential big brother, that everything yeah. he did was cool. So now that you are writing the comics and the Dungeons and Dragons and you're literally the dungeon master, what is what does Brother Joe think of little brother Jim now? Um, I think it was really weird for him at first, <laughs> yeah. you know. Uh, he's taken to it now. You know, it took it a while. And it was also one of those things where early on when some of these things were happening, yeah. I was just sort of amazed and he was just sort of like, oh, okay, is this a flash in the pan? Just, you know is this just going to happen for a, a few months or a couple of years? And then it, and then it goes away and then it just stuck around and stuck around probably the biggest, you know, he sees photos of stuff and, and whatnot, but he, you know, he hasn't had a chance to really experience a lot of convention stuff. Like we never did conventions growing up. I didn't start doing convention stuff until I was in the industry. Like I've never gone to a convention uh, before I started doing, you know, my own stuff, which is kind of weird. So um, but a few years ago, Gen Con, which is like the biggest gaming convention in North America, it takes place in Indianapolis, Indiana, uh, every year. And I've been going for years and I set up a booth, uh, with a couple of fellow authors and sell my books and stuff. And that's like Dungeons and Dragons and card games and board games and all that good stuff. And, um, so for the 50th anniversary of Gen Con, I actually, uh, brought my brother along. I sort of like Excuse me. combined... No worries. Like a combined birthday and Christmas present. Like, okay, I'm going to take you to Gen Con because you've always wanted to go. And we'd always talked about it when we were kids. Like, how wouldn't that be cool to go to Gen Con? Because they would advertise it in the magazines that we read and stuff. And I had been going for years and, you know, in some ways kind of take it for granted because like all the conventions, you just it just becomes part of your work schedule. But he had still never been. And so I brought him to the show and we had just an amazing weekend and he got to, he didn't just get to go to the show. Like, you know, he went to all the industry parties with me and got to meet some of his favorite authors and artists. Some of them are friends of mine, like, you know, but he never met them. He brought a bunch of his books and got them autographed and got to really have those kind of personal experiences. And then at the very end of the weekend, you know, he was kind of walking on air. And I said to him, we're heading to the airport. And I said, so are you hooked? Are you going to come back next year? <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he looks at me and he goes, no, I, I don't think I'm going to come back. And I was kind of shocked because he clearly had an amazing time. Yeah. And I go, are you, are you serious? And he just looks at me and he's literally got tears in his eyes. And he goes, it'll never be better than that. Oh, and I was wow. like, oh, you know, so, so it was an, it was a really special experience. You know, it was really nice to be able to bring that to him and, and, you know, for us to kind of 
really dig back into that nostalgia and, and kind of enjoy it. And I think he also appreciated the fact that, you know, as much as those photos of me at conventions, it is fun and I do really enjoy them. Like he also saw, cause it's a four day show. Yeah. Like, you know, how we were out late and I was up early and you're working the booth and you've got to be there and you can't just, you know, you've got to be on, like you've got to show your best self and talk to people and sign stuff. And it, when it's busy, it, it can take a lot out of you, you know? And yeah. he sort of saw that firsthand and was like, Oh, you're like, at the end of the day, you're just ragged. I'm like, yeah, there's it's a lot of work, you know, like there's a lot going on. And even just maintaining that social energy can kind of wipe you out if you're doing it day after day after For day. Sure. Yeah. I'm, I so, feel wiped out after just being a, a, a fan at a con or someone right, trying to get right. podcast, uh, you know, appointments with people dates, but yeah, it's it's a real full time job for for you guys because you're doing panels and you're signing books and you yeah, got lineups. And, and there's the thing is is that it's a little hard to explain to people. And I don't. I never want to sound like I'm ungrateful because I'm not. I absolutely love it. You know. But but there's that sense of like when you're tired at a convention. You know, if someone comes up to your table and they want to meet you and they're a fan of your work or whatever. Yeah. This may be the only time they ever meet you, yeah. and so the impression they get will really color their expectation of, of who you are or, or your work or anything. Yeah. And so if you're a jerk or if you're exhausted or if you're hungry or whatever, like you got to kind of just subsume that and be a, the nice guy. And, you know, they don't know if you had a bad burrito for lunch and you feel like <laughs> crap, like, yeah. but they also kind of don't like, they don't care. Like they would, but you know, like to them, they just want to have this experience of meeting yeah. you and talking to you and talking about the work or getting something signed or whatever. And so, if you can't do that, if you're not at the booth and you're not able to be your best self, like you kind of need to step away because you don't want to make a bad impression. You don't want people walking away and being like, oh yeah, I met Jim. He was a dick, you know, like, and, and they'll never know why. All they'll remember is that it didn't go well. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So it's one of those things where you kind of got to be conscious of yourself. Like, so every so often I'm at the booth and I'm kind of, my energy's flagging a bit and I'll say to Stacey, my wife, I'm like, I'm going to go walk around or I'm going to go, you know, kind of shake this off and come back. Like better I'm not here and someone comes back later when I'm in, in the mode yeah. that I'm just sort of like surly or, or not, not focused, you know? Yeah. And it's, and there's a plenty of opportunities where something can rub you the wrong way or something just doesn't, sure. you know, it's, it's uncomfortable. There's, it's too hot. There's too many people. Someone says something stupid and yeah, you need yeah. to sometimes walk it off for sure. Yeah. You know, there was one, I, I did a show, uh, you know, I do Emerald city comic-con most years. I didn't do it obviously in the last two years, but, um, I, I remember being at Emerald city comic-con and we're literally 15 minutes before the show starts. My table's all set up. Um, I'm pumped for the show. I've been saying hi to friends all day. You kind of, you, you got that energy before they open the door, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I have a phone call with my editor. He just calls me out of the blue and he lets me know that a project that I was working on got canceled. And it's like, like, couldn't you have waited till Monday? Like, yeah. oh my God, you know? So now all the energy sucked out of, out of yeah. me, you know? Yeah. And I don't feel good and I'm not in a good mood. And I come back to the table and my wife can touch, she's like, what's wrong? I'm like, oh, you know, this thing's not happening. She's like, oh, Jim, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, I'm, I'm just going to go away for half an hour. I know it's the opening of the show and that's probably one of the best times to be at the booth, but I'm not good company right now. Like, I'm just going to, I'm just going to walk this off. Yeah. And it was the right move, you know, because it's like, I, again, you want to be your best self 
and just sort of put yourself out there in a good way and, and make sure that you're leaving people with a good impression, right? So Right. I've seen you a couple yeah. of times go for a walk around the con and I'm like, oh, hey, Jim, how's it going? And now I know that's when Jim needs his... It's his, not always. It's not <laughs> Sometimes I'm genuinely shopping or I just yeah. need to stretch my legs or whatever. But sometimes sure. you're just like, yeah, I just want to, <laughs> I just want to get away for a sec. But most of the time, you know, I really do enjoy it. And the nice thing is about having a table and people can find you is, you know, people come over and they say hi or you see the same people year after year and you feel that sense of support like they they want to see you every year they want to yeah. support whatever you're doing now you know and that's a really cool thing about conventions and something i've definitely missed yeah it's, it's kind of cool to think um I've, the first time that i seen you at one of the shows was i think you, you the main thing you had was uh, skull kickers at the time right. and, and you were very it wasn't so much people coming up to you it was you saying hello to people and being friendly right because you yeah, yeah, because yeah, they don't they don't know you, they don't know the work. And that's one of those difficult things early on where you, you got to kind of sell yourself, but you don't want to come off like, hey, come over here, like, you know, kind of cheap circus barker sort of stuff. But but equally, no one knows who you are, so you've got to kind of fill that gap a little bit more. Yeah, but you left a good – The I don't really like when people on the other side of the table – start calling out to me and you didn't do that oh, sure. but but right right you left a good impression so that the next couple years that I saw you you're still the same guy even right, though now right. you're writer of avengers and you've you know conan sure. writer you're still the same guy that was just talking about well, how I, I think that's really important like the yeah. reality is you know none of this comic book celebrity is not celebrity like you know <laughs> the, the, how many other than Stan Lee, right? How many comic book creators does your average person know? Nah, exactly. Nobody, nobody, exactly. right? Like, yeah. like even the the titans of our industry, like Alan Moore and yep. Neil Gaiman and all that. Like, you still need to be certain types of plugged in yes. to even know those names. You know, what absolutely. I mean? Like, and and so if anyone's getting like big, you know, ego monster kind of head about this stuff, I I kind of laugh because I'm thinking to myself. Like, there's nobody, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, you know, you could, Todd McFarlane can go to his local grocery store and 99.9% .9 of the people <laughs> there aren't going to recognize him, right? Yeah, no, you're right. You know, and and Jim Lee, like anyone, you know, and, and we think of these people as like, oh my God, Jim Lee. It's like, Jim's great. I really like him. He's a good dude, but he can carry on his day-to-day -day life. They're not shutting know? down the mall. No one, the mall's yeah, not getting yeah, shut down for any you know, of these guys. And so if you're going to be like a big, big, you know, dick about it, come on. Like, it's ridiculous. So to me, it's like, obviously, I'm super thrilled to be doing the work. And I'm happy I've had the opportunity. And I want to keep doing this stuff. But it doesn't require me being some sort of a dick about it. Like, let's just, let's all be excited and, and pumped that this stuff's happening, you know? For sure. Yeah. So, okay, let's do some, let's do some rapid fire this or that's with Jim Zub. Sure. So growing up, Super Nintendo or Sega Genesis? Or maybe it was Nintendo. I don't know. Which one for you? Um, so I, I actually had both, a Genesis and a Super Nintendo. You're but eventually awesome. I'd say probably Super Nintendo kind of won out. Why? Because uh, I, I, I had more games for it. Okay. And uh, particularly Street Fighter Two. Yeah. Which I got on the, on the Super Nintendo. And we played it until I almost like destroyed the cartridge because I just loved it so much. Plus Final Fantasy. Like I liked, you know, uh, some of the Genesis games like, like Sonic and, and um, Fantasy Star and stuff like that. But, but in general, the Nintendo stuff stuck with me more. Yeah. There, it, looking, I was a Genesis kid because one of my cousins had it. 
and we right. would play mostly like the the hockey, the NHL games. But when you look, which back I at, played at my buddy's place for sure. Right, and but looking back retroactively, just the 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 amount of good stuff that were on Nintendo systems exclusively, you couldn't yeah. you couldn't top that. Yeah, and N- Nintendo had a good product back in those days. Yeah, they yeah. Still do. I, like I said, I had both uh, for quite a while. But um, but in the end, I definitely used my 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 SNES more. Okay, um, you were you're a very good at writing team books, team comics. When Thanks. you were growing up, I really enjoy it. Were you an X Men or a Teen Titan fan? I was an X Men guy. So uh, you know, if there's an answer and it's a DC or Marvel, it's almost always a Marvel for me. Okay. Like I did not read a lot of DC stuff growing up. Okay. Most of the DC stuff I read was like stuff I borrowed from friends. But the things I actually collected, uh, Joe and I collected Marvel like crazy. We were really, really deep in the paint for for Marvel. So. Um, yeah, Joe uh, collected a lot of the X-Men books and I would read them voraciously. Um, I collected Excalibur, uh, Fantastic Four, Avengers, all kinds of different stuff. So That was a good time for comics. That was- oh, man. Like some of those runs are just so seminal. It's crazy. And you didn't realize how good you had it, I think, because you just took it for granted, like how many of the books were good and how consistently good they were. Um, yeah. When I was getting ready to write Champions, mm-hmm. I actually sat down and reread the majority of Claremont's X-Men because I wanted to kind of tap into why that book worked so well on a month-to-month basis and, and the kinds of drama that he was instilling in the book. Not because I wanted to copy it. I just wanted to sort of like remind myself, okay, this is you know the way he paced or the way he thought about characters or he would sort of, you know, stretch out a cool plot line or whatever. And, and the vast majority of it still holds up really, really well. And the stuff that doesn't is like mostly, you know, a little hokey of the time kind of stuff mm-hmm. or, or the, the monthly limitation in the sense that they didn't know the stuff was going to be collected in trade. Right. So every single issue they would check in with everyone and say their names and their powers. Yes. Or they would have some narrative caption where they would remind you what they could do. And it, when you're reading it on a month-to-month basis, you don't notice it. But when you're rereading them all in order, you're like, wow, every 20 pages, they're going to tell me, you know, Logan has unbreakable adamantium bones. and Yeah. It's part of the charm, weird. but yeah. it's almost like, oh, God. I-, I was just saying this to someone today. Actually. But that's not – again, that's not a fault, I think. Of, no. They were just writing for the for the format, you know. That's so. – that, and you look back and you and – I, and I always remind myself, this is the one thing – I'm not the best as far as being a critical comic fan because I kind of like everything. Mm-hmm. But the one yeah, thing that, that the one thing that I try to remind myself is certain eras have a charm to them. So remember, this oh, yeah, is totally. being written in the '70s. Don't be, you know, don't go into this in today's world. Except pretend you're in the '70s while you read this, and then when you're reading, right, the, right. you know, enjoy it for what it was at that time. And Chris Claremont right. could have been a novelist. The way he wrote. Oh man, Claremont, Claremont's Claremont's soap operatic stuff is so good, and it's so it's so consistent in terms of the way he builds it and pays it off. Um, and the characters constantly feel like they're changing, like no one's standing still. Yes. And it, it it felt like once he left the book, they kind of froze the characters into certain archetypes that they 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 were too afraid to change them at that point. So they yeah. change the costumes or they would, you know, have some of the relationships dig around a little bit. But most of the time it felt like, okay, well, this is now just the way they are from now on. 
And um, it never felt like that with Claremont. Like Claremont always was was pushing them into new opportunities. And even if I didn't like every single one, I was like, well, that's different. You know, like I'm I'm intrigued. Where's this going to go? And this, yeah, it was almost like you read comics back then. It's like, this is what the characters are going through. This is just whether I like this story or not. This is what's happening in their lives. And you you are invested in the character at that point. Right. I think one of the, one of the dangers that um, writers come onto a book and because they're nostalgic about certain eras of their, you know, if if they're fans of the book, they're taking over and that's, Mm -hmm. you know, not a bad thing but they can want to drag things back to that era and try and just replay the greatest hits. You know what Mm. I mean? And it's a danger because the only way the book will feel dynamic and interesting and, and, and be worth reading is if you move the ball forward, if you're trying things, even if you're failing, if you're trying things and pushing them into new spaces or, or different, you know, challenges rather than, just, oh, here it comes again. Same old, same old. You know what I mean? Like the reason why you thought that story was so cool was because it was something different and unexpected. Just doing it again is not going to make it good. You know what I mean? Right. Have you so, found yourself um, trying not to fall into that trap yourself? Yeah, I, fought, I, I sort of fight some of my, my, my you know, fandom kind of expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Where where it can't just be like just because I liked a particular storyline doesn't mean that let's do it again. You know that's not a reason enough to do a story. You have to have a story that that sort of works on its own merits. You know what I mean? And there's nothing wrong with nostalgia, and there's nothing wrong with continuity. It's all part of what makes these characters feel vibrant and interesting. But you can use continuity, and you can use the the character histories and still move the ball forward, you know? Perfect example. Like, The Winter Soldier is a great story because, you know, Brubaker and company are are taking old stories and they're reframing them and they're doing something unexpected and making it really work, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not quite what you've seen before in a Captain America book. It's not quite done the way that, that we've seen in the past. It's not just, oh, here's the Red Skull again, you know, showing up and doing same old, same old. And so, it, you know, it really becomes this interesting and dynamic uh, storyline, even though it's using the past, even though it's using continuity. But if you just have the same kinds of stories over and over and over again, then it's going to wear out its welcome. All the, one, all the stories that we remember and that we consider as seminal, you know, Better Ray Bill shows up in, yeah. in Thor for the very first time or, right. or the Dark Phoenix Saga or, you know, uh, Winter Soldier or, or any of these kinds of things. Craven's Last Hunt. Like, you, you can't just do another Craven story that riffs on the last hunt and, and gain the power of that story by doing it, you know? All you're going to feel like is a cheap photocopy of a photocopy. Right. You're now. You're never gonna top. You're never gonna top the that. You know. Yeah. Jordan so what you need to do is, is you need to is. say, well, why was Craven's Last Hunt such an awesome story? Well, it's because they took this villain that, in some ways, could be kind of hokey, like a lot of these Silver Age villains were, and they reframed them as something almost spiritual and and scary, and then played it to the hilt. And you're like, so what can I learn from that? What I can learn from that is let's take another villain and take a different attack with them. Rather than it being like, all right, let's have Craven show up and do the spiritual thing again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. So that's – you can still learn from it. Mm-hmm. You just got to learn the right lessons. 
And the lessons are make a story that has emotional intensity, make a story with a threat that feels like it's really substantial and, and have the character being pulled deeper into this mystery or, or whatever, you know, and then, and then you might be able to grab readers in a way that you're using some of those qualities, but you're not just playing the same old tune. Right. Is there, it it must be a, a difficult balance when, um, people, people become so, possessive of these characters of these of course these continuities and things like that but then there's like you're saying so is there a, a fine line in um when you move the ball forward the temptation to change something significant about a character is that the same as making the character grow as a person well, but it, it's can you change them significantly in a way that I mean, the ultimate kind of surprise is one that the reader doesn't see coming, but the minute that they see it, they accept it because it makes sense. You know what I mean? They go, oh, wow, that is a crazy cool idea. I never would have thought of that. And yet now that you've done it, I don't want it to go any other way. Do you You feel, do you feel that that's something that's missing right now? Or do you feel Uh, that it's... I think, you know, it's a hard thing to do. I don't think it's something you can just pull these out of your hat because if you did, man, you'd be the next, you know, whatever, right? Like, it is really hard, particularly the characters that have decades and decades worth of stories beneath them. You're trying to make something unexpected that uses the pieces that have been established in in a new way, but also feels like you haven't lost the core of the character. You know, like... That's a, that's a tall order. And so I see sometimes I'll read a book and I'll be like, oh, I can see what you're going for. And I, I appreciate the effort, but I'm not (laughs) quite committed, you know? And, and I'm sure tons of people have said the same thing about some of my stories. Like, Mm -hmm. oh yeah, nice try, but not quite. And that's totally reasonable because not every story is going to be an instant classic. Not every story is going to hit those highs. But, you know, because of the, the particular format with the superhero stuff where you're doing this month in and month out, you're taking whatever, potentially 12 cracks at it, sometimes more a year. Yeah. And if you can hit, you know, even baseline drives, whatever analogy we want to use, if you can make this thing work more often than not and then occasionally really knock it out, then I feel like you're, if your batting average is still good and then occasionally you can crush it, cool. You know, that's a pretty good place to be in. Well, that's usually how those seminal runs were, right? Is that there? Yeah, was- I think we all remember that one holy crap issue, and then you reread it and you go, "Yeah, that issue's still an absolute knockout." But there were whatever a half dozen that were just fine. Yeah, but they, but they also didn't. None of them kind of let everything down. Like mm-hmm. there's always a certain level that they always meet. You know? Yeah, there was moments along the way. One killer story that, but it, the killer right. story exists because you had moments. Right, the transcendent kind of quality. And I think one of the difficulties now is that, for example, quiet moments don't get appreciated the same way. Like, one of the things I love about the Claremont, you know, X-Men or or, uh, Avengers or Spider-Man of the 80s is that you could have little cute moments between characters, romance or or, um, character building stuff or stories, sometimes whole issues that felt like downtime or they felt like, the moments between big, big stories. 
And you never felt like you were being cheated on it because you cared about the characters and you cared about the secondary cast. And, and I noticed there's a certain amount of criticism that comes from people if they're like, well, it didn't feel like much happened this issue. And it's like, yeah, but these are the issues that make us care. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I, I you know, it, it's, it's also yeah. one of the problems with having every single superhero only romancing other superheroes. It doesn't feel like they're the human side of these characters matters as much anymore, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, so, that makes very good you sense. Know, yeah, and it's like, it, it, it feels almost like celebrities only boning celebrities. Like, n- nobody has a normal life anymore or no one has a secret identity or something they can return to to, to ground them and anchor them in in the world that we recognize. You know what I mean? That's that's a, a yeah, you know what? Now that you bring it up and, and you put it in that way it's true because i'm i'm often rereading older stuff whether it's you know from a particular decade or even just things i'm catching up on but i'm rereading some spider-man because the movie's coming Mm -hmm. out i'm in the i'm kind of in the zone but um those moments one of the best issues from the jms uh run for me was when peter sits down with aunt may to talk about being spider-man or right, the Chip right. Zdarsky issue with J. Jonah Jameson, and they're just talking to each other. Those are the best things yeah. about Spider-Man, is that he's in a world dealing with real flesh and blood people that mean a lot to him. Right. And the reason why you care about them is because yeah. they feel like they're grounded and whole. You know, one of the reasons why I really enjoyed the, the Spider-Man PS4 game was yeah. because they had a lot of these human moments where he's just talking to his aunt or he's on the, the whatever radio with, with one of his, you know, friends or on the phone while he's swinging around the city talking to MJ or something. And you're like, that feel, felt like the comic to me. That felt like those moments that I used to get in the comic that I yeah. don't get as much of now because every issue has to be this pulse pounding, oh my God. And it's like, you can't turn the volume up to 11 all the time. Like you gotta have contrast, you know? Yeah. So like one of my favorite characters from the old X-Men comics was Stevie Hunter. She was the dance instructor that Ileana and Kitty would go visit from time to time. And they could like complain to her about their regular life. Right. You know, she knew they were mutants, but like she liked them as a friend. It wasn't about super celebrities or whatever. They were just kids. You know, they were teenagers. Right. And and she could kind of give them a platform to to complain about their lives or or their frustrations, you know? And she was a very human, very normal person going about her life, you know? Uh, and, and you didn't need to know a ton about her to like her. You didn't need to, to, she didn't have to have superpowers in order to be worthy of their time and attention, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's something that was part of the charm of, of that era. Even just, uh, again, I'm Spider-Man's fresh in my mind, but Peter's, uh, interactions with Deb Whitman, kind of a yep. minor f- female character in the whole Absolutely. tapestry of Spider-Man. But when you're reading it and you're living life with Peter, you, you, in this character who's like, whatever happened to her in a way, but right. it, it, in those moments, it's like, this is, these are real people that he's affecting their life or Matt Murdock for right. that. Like another one of Matt Murdock's girlfriends that he's like, man, right. Matt Murdock is a dick. Right. And it's like, you know, this, the, the supporting cast, I feel like has, uh, now tends to be more of like rotating guest stars. It's like, oh, well, superheroes only interact with superheroes. And yeah. you're like, I feel like that is a missed a missed opportunity, you know, based on how things have kind of changed. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I was watching, we were at a friend's place and, and he had on like in the background, just like best of the eighties kind of whatever music videos. <laughs> yeah. And we we're looking at how corny and low the production values were. And at one point we're watching, I forget what it was. It was like the pointer sisters or something. Yeah. And they looked very compared to the kind of lavish makeup and, and costuming we see now, they looked really normal. They just looked like <laughs> ladies singing a song you know what I mean yeah and I was like wow they're not really done up very much and my wife just said something really off the cuff she goes yeah that was when you didn't have to you know you could just still look like being be a normal person but also be a celebrity and I was like oh I guess that's true you know like the the feeling that not everyone had to be absolute drop-dead supermodel in order to be worthy of your your attention you know yeah and and that was I think the the kind of charm too of that era of penciling those artists there was a they definitely made beautiful looking women but there was also mm-hmm. things about their faces that just had enough of an imperfection to it that you kind right, of that, yeah you know gave it character. you know one of the yeah one of the difficulties now i feel like for the artists is that the expectation in terms of detail and the digital production pipeline that we have on comics yeah. means that the, you know the the books are way more detailed and way more the colors are way more intense than they ever were. And so the ability for someone to be monthly is so, so, so much more difficult, you know? Mm. Yeah. Makes sense. And um, without the consistency of those runs, it's a lot harder mm. for, I think, an artist to make a statement on a book. Like writers are now the, 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 the constant and the artist is constantly changing, you know? Yeah. It's, it's one of those tough gigs where, just to give the artist a break sometimes because they're doing so much of the heavy lifting, sure. you know, that, that a person may interrupt that wonderful run they're doing. So yeah, it, it's, it's a tough thing. When you do a team book, um, you're clearly natural at creating characters, whole cloth because of your Dungeons nice. and Dragons experience and, you know, something like wayward. It seems like all of those characters were, were people you were have created in your head for years. But when you do a team book, and there is something like the champions where you have legacy mm. characters. Um, how do you approach doing something like that? Well, so pretty much any book I'm doing that's not characters I'm creating myself, mm-hmm. like, you know, I'm not a creator on project or whatever. Research is really, really crucial to me. Like I want to, even if I think I know something and I feel like I've got a deep history with it, I will re, you know, kind of invigorate my, knowledge pool by rereading some of my favorite issues or runs or whatever, because I just want to get back to that baseline of, of understanding and reading for research is different from reading for fun. So like I get a notepad out and I sit down with usually PDFs or whatever on my, on my tablet, I ask the editor to send me, you know, stuff and they send the digital files, I download them. And then I sit there you know, grab a drink and, and my notepad and I just start reading. But instead of just reading for pleasure, I'm taking notes constantly. So I'm writing down key lines of dialogue so I can get a sense of their cadence, like how they tend to speak. Ah, okay. I'm writing down little bits of information about them, sometimes trivial stuff I've forgotten or other times stuff I just need to re-remind myself of. Uh, if they're referencing other storylines that I want to follow up on, I'll write that down. So I've got a kind of an... Uh, a list of more stuff to ask for from the editor once I'm done this particular section. Um, Sometimes I'm writing down questions for myself. Like, did this ever get resolved? 
And if so, where, you know, and then I'll follow up and read that. Or if there is no answer, I'm like, oh, that could be a story. Maybe what if we, we dug back into this old part of their history that never quite got, you know, figured out. And sometimes it doesn't turn into anything, but you never know. Right. And so I'll fill this scrap sheet of paper just with all these little chicken scratch notes for myself to kind of build up a feeling and an identity and an, oh, okay, this is what's important. Or sometimes you'll get, you'll read different runs and the characters have vastly different ways of being written. You know, different writers will do just crazy changes in terms of who they are. So then I'm like, okay, what are the core traits that hold this character together? You know, are they always confident? Are they never confident? Are they, you know, uh, were they confident and they lose confidence or, you know, have they been in love or like all these different elements that you kind of, you just constantly kind of tug on and, and look at. And then, you know, particularly with the team books, I also start looking at either contrast or similarities. So if these characters are really headstrong, well, they're both headstrong. That means when they, they're going to clash with each other if they don't have the same opinion on something, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this person is very faithful and this other person is very pessimistic. You're like, okay, well, that's, you know, optimism and, and, you know, uh, uh, pessimism. And how will that play off of each other when these characters interact? Or have they ever met each other in the past and did it go well? And, you know, then it's a matter of saying, okay, well, then we're either continuing the friendship or relationship or we're changing things. Like, oh, we used to get along, but now we don't. Why? Well, because something has changed about who they are or the way they they act or what they value. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so you start to kind of come up with these, it is like role-playing. You're kind of the dungeon master putting these pieces into play and then sort of seeing how these scenes will play out in, in your head or, or trying to come up with reasons for for sparks, whether that's sparks of romance or sparks of conflict. And, and what can that mean to your story, right? Right. And... And so it just becomes this big, broad brainstorming kind of list that, you know, even if 90% of it I don't use, the 10% that I do will guide me all the way through the project. Gotcha. Right? So, and so that's the kind of stuff that, and when readers can sense that you are respecting what has come before, even while you're changing things, even while you're evolving it, you're always making it feel like the thread is continuing from what they already know and see, I think it builds a sense of respect. Like, trust me, this story is going to be, I'm respecting what's come before. So trust me that this is going to be worth following along with, you know? Right. Yeah. So let me ask you this, seeing as how you're always looking at the different facets of a story, just in your prep work, whether you're doing Mm -hmm. research or you're writing, you know, your own creator, own story, um, and you're constantly thinking about the relationship dynamics and people's cadences, the things they say that inform you. Do you, when you go about regular life, do you find that all of those things help you navigate just your own story, as it were, in, in figuring things out based on how you've interacted with characters? Yeah, I think I, in some ways it does. It makes you a little more aware of mm-hmm. of your own patterns. You know what I mean? Right. Like every so often I'll, I'll start, I'll talk to my wife about something and I'll be in the middle of a sentence and then I'm like, yeah, I don't even know why I'm saying that. That's not, that's not, 
like I'm just falling into an old pattern or I'm just doing a thing that I've always do. You know what I mean? Right. And she sort of laughs because she's like, <laughs> I was just going to call you on that. And I'm like, I called myself before you got to me. Like <laughs> I, I see my own kind of foibles as well, you know? Um, and, and I think that that's a really valuable thing because so many bad behaviors are, are patterned in our lives. And so many of these characters you know, we, we see ourselves in them ideally for their aspirational qualities, but also for their flaws, right? Yep. So when, when you get used to analyzing these flaws, you also go, well, what are my problems? Like, what do I do mm. wrong? You know? And um, one of the things that, that used to be a problem and can still be a problem sometimes, when you're a storyteller and you become very good at crafting a tale and, and taking people on a little ride and engaging them, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Is that you end up, you know, dominating a lot of conversation. Yeah. And it can be a real, it's one thing when, okay, so like you're interviewing me and I'm here to talk for yep. lack of a better term about me. Right. But in a, in a, a normal conversation with normal people, it's a, it's an exchange. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And we are exchanging, like you're telling little anecdotes or things in between. Sure. But for the most, an interview is different, right? Yeah. But like at a table with a group of people or out at a bar with friends, if I'm not careful, like I can just sort of bulldoze the table, you know? Yeah. I find and that, that like, could happen to yeah. myself too. Like I'm by nature an introvert where I like more one-on-one -on -one conversations as opposed to a big room and I don't need to, mm -hmm. you know, be in full of a party uh, right. environment but but I do find that because I'm I'm accustomed to conversation I always want to sometimes like you said take over and that is a difficult right. thing when you know how to tell a story some people just like right. how you tell a story yeah like I'll sometimes I'll talk to someone and they'll start telling me an anecdote and I'm expecting it to follow a dramatic cadence yes and all of a sudden it just stops cold and I'm like, well, what happened? They go, oh, I don't know. They're like, you know, yeah, oh, that's my, it. I, that's I, all I had to say. And you're like, no. Like, I, I know how this <laughs> is supposed to go. Yeah, if yeah. If that sounds weird, mm -hmm. you know? Yes, I, uh, I completely do. Yeah, yeah. And so it's one of those weird things where there was a couple times early on when my wife and I were dating. And she would laugh it off. But it was a really important criticism that I needed to hear. She would just sort of lean over and she would whisper and she'd go, it's not the gym show. And I was like, right. You know, like... Like, let, let other people engage, you know, let, let the conversation flow back and forth. You know, you don't need to bulldoze this thing with, with whatever personality, you know, or storytelling or, or whatnot, right? That's, that's cool, though, that those little anecdotes about your wife are really cool. Um, I don't know, like little treasures about a person that keep us grounded. Like when you have that person right. in your life, it's so nice to to know that, yeah. that they'll call and, you and on something. Right. Our ability to share and our ability to, you know, in the right way, criticize each other, like yeah. in the way that's going to make you a better person, right? Yeah. Or make you think about better about each other or, or treat other people better because, you know, you're, they, they love you and they care about you and they want you to be at your best yeah. and they have seen you at your best and sometimes at your most distracted and unaware, you know? Yeah. But they, they keep, and, they uh, stick with you. Yeah. And, and, and so that's just one of those little things where you're like, right. You know, or <laughs> I could get really frustrated about, 
project stuff because I care about it, because I want to do the best job possible. And, you know, to me at any moment, these things are really important and I, and I want to make it, you know, work. And then she has also been a really good force where she can sort of pull back and go, this is not as bad as you think it is, or this is not, this is, you know, I know in your head right now, this seems like a really important or difficult or thing you're dealing with, mm-hmm. but it's not that bad. And right. just hearing that makes you kind of reframe it and go, yeah, you're probably right. Like this is not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, one of the things I would do, and it doesn't happen very often, but if I would, if I'm about to send a real fireball of an email where I'm like, <laughs> I'm pissed, I got to get this off my chest or whatever. And yeah. she's like, why don't you send that to me first? Yeah. And then the, the act of sending it to her will take like 70% of my heat off, just getting that out of my system. And then she'll read it and she goes, it's very funny because like you're good with words. So you can just burn someone in this really deeply sarcastic and, and, and cynical way. You don't want to send that. Like yeah. that is not going to get what you want. Right. And you're going to feel really good for about 30 seconds until you realize that's going to cause damage. Yeah. You like, can't take it back. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You know, <laughs> and 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 that was what you needed to hear. You know, wise, very wise lady. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, you're writing Conan now. Yeah, Another, I I'm, actually just wrapped up Conan. Okay. Another yeah, dream. Yeah, my last issue true. of Conan was was yeah issue three hundred that came out. So what would have that been in the current run before they? Twenty five is the is the current numbering, and then Legacy three hundred. Yeah. Okay. So it was another dream come true for you. It seems like yeah, every project time. you end up getting is stuff that you love, which is incredible. It's 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 super inspiring and aspiring to to Thank you, you. Know. but tell us who Conan is according to Jim Zub. So Conan is he's like the original kind of sellsword um mercenary survivor. He mm-hmm. he um is one of the most important characters in, in sword and sorcery literary fiction. Yeah. And there's a reason why, even though there are hundreds of characters in that kind of milieu and, and many that rip off his traits, he has kind of endured. And that's because he carries these very intrinsic qualities of what it is to be a survivor and what it is to, to kind of find your way through a world that wants to destroy you, but you will hold on no matter what. And he make, you know, he becomes a king by his own hand. And that is this quality of pulling himself up from, from squalor and his, you know, beginnings to learn how to be a leader of men and to learn how to be, I, I wouldn't even say the best version of himself to survive in a world that wants to destroy him and to sort of embrace a destiny that not even the gods were ready for in a sense. Um, And so it's a really, you know, powerful and potent, you know, character in, in pulp and something that kind of really ignited my imagination when I was a kid. So when you finally get this assignment and you're working at Marvel comics, it's not just, you know, I'm not saying that, I mean, the dark horse Conan is some of the best, Conan from what I It's awesome. Honestly, Conan, Conan just about anywhere. The the vast majority of the, the runs have been really cool. It seems to bring out a lot in in some of the best writers. But Conan coming home to Marvel was obviously extra special and and felt very, you know, felt really 
like like a, a return to form, you know? Right. And and with that happening, you are now scripting the ongoing run of this story yeah. character. How like amongst all of the characters that you liked growing up, did you have like what would be your top five, and where would Conan rank in that? I mean, Conan's probably in the top ten. I mean, fantasy wise, right up at the top, right? Right. But in terms of you know comic characters, obviously, I was a big superhero goober, so that that you know. Doctor Strange and Spider-Man were really, really top-notch for me, and I collected the hell out of those books. Um, but yeah, Conan stuff, I love Savage Sword of Conan, the, the magazine, because mm-hmm. it always felt like it was they could get away with way more violence and right. way more kind of salacious stuff, and it was just this intense, unleashed vision of the character. And because it was in black and white, the artists that they got seemed to do these really um, intricate kind of linear renderings in, in a way that no one else was doing at the time, you know? And and people, when they would get on that book, just seemed to be unleashed. Like they would just, the best friggin' art and the craziest, most awesome pulpy stories. And so, yeah, Conan's huge for me. And I never imagined, even in my wildest dreams, that I would get a chance to write an official Conan story, let alone... Mm-hmm. be you know shepherding the flagship book for you know a year and a half like that was just such a mind bender for me in terms of my career trajectory like just baffling uh and amazing yeah um and 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 weirdly enough not something that when they offered me the book yeah i didn't say yes at the in the moment not because i didn't want it but because I just at the moment they asked me, I had an insane schedule with a lot of projects already I was committed to. And all I could think was, I don't want to screw this up. Yeah. So give me a couple of days to try and clear my schedule and make sure I've got the space to breathe because I want to make this so special. And then I came back to them and was like, okay, all my ducks are in a row. Let's do this, you know? So with a character like Conan, um, he like I I just I don't haven't read that much of him, but the the mm-hmm. bits that I have, he is the ultimate survivor. He's the ultimate yep. adapter to whatever situation is calling for. He figures out a, a way to make himself not die. And right, in- and and I think that that's something that you know the movie version of the character they've hinted at and built certain like the Milius movie is really cool, but it's not quite the Robert E. Howard Conan. Like, it's a bit of a different character. And right. and so, unless you've read, you know, the Roy Thomas stuff where Kurt Busiek to a lesser degree or, or uh, you know, obviously the original Robert E. Howard prose, I think most people's expectation is, is Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is fine, but, you know, he's actually a much more intelligent and has a lot more guile than I think people realize. Right, And that survival instinct comes through not just in brute strength and raw viciousness, but in, you know, a, a, a smart planning and social skills. And, you know, by the end of, by the time he's a king, he speaks, I've got multiple languages. and, and Far from a barbarian. Oh, yeah. He's a scholar and a, and a rogue and, a, you know, he's all these things that he's had to learn to be in order to get himself through you know, the decades. Right. And right. so that's something that, um, I, you know, I wanted to reflect in the book is that this guy is not just, 
brute strength personified. Right. But he's got all these other qualities that make him so potent and make him so dangerous and make him a force for change. And that's something that I think is a constant through the best Conan stories is he ends up somewhere, sometimes somewhere he's never been before or somewhere where he is um, not expected. Right. And then whatever's happening there, it's going to change because Conan showed up. The minute he shows up, you know, revolution's going to happen or, or someone's going to die or <laughs> magic's going to be unleashed or curses are going to erupt. Like the, he is a, a catalyst for change. Yeah. And usually, you know, when I say for good, I mean like either his own good or his own survival or whatever, but he will never leave a story not having, like, it won't just sit there. It's always got to explode. Right. You know what I mean? And that, that's kind of, Sometimes, especially in his youth and he's impetuous and he's going to steal something and that's going to cause a domino effect of chaos. And when he's older, it's like, okay, he's leading an army or they're fighting a, you know, dark God or something like it's whatever it is, you know, the act of Conan being involved means shit's going down. Like that's just, that's something that I really like about him as a character. That that's a really cool way to look at him. Now, some, some would make an argument that he is the symbol of toxic masculinity. Did that sort of, did that in any way get in the way for you of writing the character, perhaps the way he had been written in the past? Or did you write exactly what you wanted? I think the vast majority of the time, if you actually read the stories, it's rare that he is that figure that you describe, right? And I'm talking about the original novels in particular, but even, you know, the Roy Thomas stories and things like that. Yes, the dude fights and fucks but like the reality is he's he's not raping and pillaging like that is not his his way do you know what i mean yeah like the ladies want him absolutely 100 because he's like you know raw masculinity for sure but he's also very much about like oh okay you you know if you are weak, I will protect you. If you are strong, you know, stand with me and let's go get him or whatever. And that's male or female. Like he fights and kills if necessary, you know, women warriors or whoever, like he's not against anyone based on sex or creed or anything like that. Like that's not his, his modus operandi. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Which isn't to say like some of the pulp stories don't have cringy descriptions of things because of this is the 1930s and the type of language that's being used. Right. Right. But on the whole, Conan is more about adventure and survival than he is about any sort of mandate from Robert E. Howard to tell you, all right, this is what a real man does. You know what I mean? It's like, this is what, anyone who's going to survive in the Hyborian age does right. Male, female, light or dark or whatever. And so um, for me, you know, I know that the fandom, it's fascinating to me because I, for the very first time really became plugged into the Robert E. Howard and the Conan fandom. And it crosses so many different aspects. Like there are people, you know, who remember very much the kind of classic, um, Conan covers of the eighties, which are a lot of those are, you know, big rippling barrel chested Conan, you know, and, and some nubile woman, you know, at his, at his arm or whatever. And that's like the art and imagery of those covers, but not necessarily 
the actual content of those stories. Uh, and the other aspect is some people like take a real only the strong survive kind of jingoist approach to it. Like Conan is like you say, this toxic masculinity, like, you know, he'll kill anyone and anything. It's like, dude doesn't just walk around lopping people's heads off. Yeah. Like <laughs> he doesn't kill innocent people and he doesn't destroy people just because they're weak. Not at all. But he recognizes, you know, if someone is needs to be protected or if there is injustice, he's also the guy who's going to, you know, see it through. And right. if you betray him or you are trying to take down people that he cares about, he will hunt you to the ends of the earth. Absolutely. Is that masculinity or is that toxic masculinity? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 that's why I agree with you because when I'm reading just uh, your, the second half of your run, the, the next trade, um, I'm really enjoying that journey that he's going on in those first four issues. And you're Thanks. really getting to uh, the, the dialogue that he has while he's journeying through the jungle or wherever it is that he's kind of figuring out what's going on with his partner right. in the story. It's those moments where you really get to see this, this is a person who's lived. This is a person who has to adapt to what he needs to adapt to, but he does protect those who are defenseless. Right. And that's always been like, I feel like that's intrinsic to the character. Right. And some people have definitely written him a lot colder. Like there's been, there's versions of him in some of the stories where it's like, have you got money? No. All right. You're no use to me. And it's like, eh, I don't, he would he didn't become a King because he's a cold hearted monster. Do you know what I mean? Like right. that's, he definitely has moments in, in, you know, if, if it comes down to his survival or someone else, he's going to choose himself, but that isn't like, and therefore he's going to throw a pregnant woman over the side of a ship. Like he's not, he's not a freaking monster. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's just a matter of, okay, you know, in, in a, in the face of, you know, wanton destruction, if an army is invading, he's not just going to be like, well, I will single-handedly confront them because, because, you know what I mean? So he, I don't think he's a hundred percent selfless, like a paladin, no. you know, but he's also not heartless or, or without uh, a sense of justice and honor. And if he, one of the big things about him is if he does give his word, he will carry through on it. You know, one of the things we do in, in my run is he um, meets this woman, Naru Lee, and they basically, she tells him about this sword that's been stolen, Yeah, uh, you know, and he gets it and she was going to return it to her master, the warlord uh, in Katai. And he basically says, I will help you steal this thing. And then after she dies, he steals it and he goes and takes it back because he told her he, yeah, would, he would do that. That's right. Yeah. You know? And so to me, that's like, is that the safest thing for him to do? No, but he's an adventurer and he made a promise. And so he's going to do it. And it's like, that's, that's true to him as a character. And that's true to him as, you know, the explorer and the, and the survivor that he is. Yeah. Right. And one of the ways he's been able to last as long as he does is because he is for the vast majority of his stories, he's honorable and he treats others, you know, with there's equality. A dignity. The there's a dignity to yeah. him. Yeah, exactly. And even if he's like, well, you know, you crossed me, I'm going to kill you. Like he'll basically say like, you can give up or like, I'm going to take you down. You know, I can make this painful or painless. Like let's, you know, let's do this thing. 
And, and that's the kind of stuff that feels pretty intrinsic to the character. And there are ways to do that and make it so it's not toxic and make it so it's not grunting, you know, might makes right masculinity. Like I, and that's something that I feel like is, is not as hard to navigate as long as you're thinking your way through it. And it doesn't mean that, that every woman has to be his equal or something, or that you have to, you know, one of the mistakes I feel like some people make is one of the ways they show that people are strong is by making everyone else look weak. And it's like, no, you make someone look strong by doing strong things with them. And so it's cool for him to be strong and for other two people to be strong too. And that that, you know, everyone kind of feels cool rather than being like, the only way to make this character cool is by embarrassing you. Do you know what I mean? Or, or our main character or whatever. Right. Yeah, those are old tropes that get tired quickly. I, w- I wish they were old tropes. It seems like they keep getting pulled out a lot. Like that, that they feel like, well... You know, and it's a pretty classic kind of thing where you're like, well, the new villain shows up and the way we show the villain is badass by making them kick the ass out of the old villain. That's true. So they're like, whoa, they're even bigger than that guy. Yeah. But you can do the same kind of thing even with the hero where you're like, sure, our hero's awesome. But now they just get their, you know, they absolutely get embarrassed and get their butt kicked. And you're like, meh. I mean, sure, my hero has to have setbacks, but don't make them look like a chump. You know what I mean? Like, make make... Make them earn it. Make them do something genuinely powerful rather than just having my main character do something stupid, if that makes sense. Yes. No, I, I totally – yeah, don't don't uh, cheapen one character to elevate the other one because then – Yeah. It's, it's almost like the – I mean it may, may be a bad comparison, but I grew up watching professional wrestling, which is weekly storytelling. Yeah. And if you make – Absolutely. And they would always fight backstage but like if you make me lose this match this way it completely ruins my character and there's nowhere for us to go from there so i i get it too from from a serialized book that these characters are ongoing but if you just do this to them how do you get them out of that hole all of a sudden they become a joke of a character yeah and and you can sometimes tell when a writer is kind of tilting a story just to get to a moment rather than it feeling like a natural extension of of character or a natural extension of plot you know what i mean right and i can sometimes be like oh i see why you wanted to get to this point i just wish you hadn't got there this way right you know yeah yeah i hear what you mean yeah there's like you you've always wanted to fix that thing and and this was your opportunity to do it but it was kind of stupid you just you were you were rushing into the end result rather than thinking your way through right how do i what you ideally want is you want the reader to agree with you of course that's how we you know got there or of course that's what had to happen because you know you 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 built up trust with them right in the narrative you're weaving you know right right okay so this um how are you doing for time by the way i don't want to i'm doing all right okay yeah if you want to chat a bit more i'm fine with that okay um marvel approaches you since all of your dreams seem to come true Marvel approaches you and says... <laughs> Thanks. I, I really do hope that continues to be the case. <laughs> it seems that way. But they say, pick any book you want. Uh, take it wherever you want to go, whether it's in continuity or whatnot. Who's the character? Right. And who do you want to be the artist working on it with you? Uh, see, that's the artist thing is particularly difficult because it's like... That's where my nostalgia definitely does kick into gear, where it's like 
so many artists that I grew up loving their artwork and just the idea that I would write a story and they would draw it kind of would be this mind, mind bending, you know, experience. Right. Um, you know, probably, I mean, either Dr. Strange or Spider-Man, because those were the two books that I was collecting really hardcore. And so it's like, those are characters that I've thought about for years and feel like, and I know, I mean, Spider-Man's the guy, like he's the the flagship, you know, Marvel hero. And so who wouldn't want to write Spider-Man? You know, having your name on Amazing Spider-Man is like, gold standard for a lot of people in this business. So it's not a real surprise that I'm saying that. Um, But that again, as a challenge, like a character that has so many stories under their belt, how do you shake it up? How do you keep it dynamic and fresh and, and, and mobile? You know what I mean? Um, I would love that challenge. I would be really excited about it. Dr. Strange is one of those characters that also there's been some longer runs, but most of them are relatively short and they seem to fall back on certain tropes over and over again because magic. And right. so one of the, I don't even know if I'd call it cocky, but one of the things I would love to do is kind of redefine or, or help revitalize elements of magic in the Marvel Universe. This idea of what is at the heart of all these things and why, how does it tick? Because I think the reason why some people either don't enjoy stories with magic or they feel like they don't have stakes is because there's a feeling that magic can do everything. Mm-hmm. And so if it can do everything, then nothing matters. And you're like, well, no, you just have to make, you just have to define it better. And you have to create rules and systems and, and make sure the audience knows what's at stake. And then it matters, you know? But if you if you do just have characters twiddle their fingers and say, okay, now we can fly. Okay, now we can do this. Okay, now we can go here. Then you're right. It won't feel like any of it matters. And it won't feel like it's a story worth pursuing, you know? Right. Do you have a particular uh, Doctor Strange run that is close to your heart that you enjoy so much? You'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the Roger Stern stuff is friggin' stellar. There are two issues in particular. What's crazy is I think they're like three issues two issues apart from each other. There's um, there's a story that Michael Golden drew, and it's basically right after Clea has left Doctor Strange. They were they were in love and, and she was his apprentice and all this stuff. And she leaves to go back to the Dark Dimension and, and Doctor Strange is absolutely <clears throat> at the bottom emotionally. And it's this issue drawn by Michael Golden and it is absolutely one of the best single issue stories I've ever read. And it's poignant and it's wonderful and it's a little surreal and funny and strange. I don't literally. Hmm. Um, and I just fucking love it. And it, uh, I've probably bought that issue four times because I would go to comic conventions. And if I see it just in a back issue box, I'll just buy another copy of it. Because it's right. not even an expensive issue. It's just an awesome one. Right. I kind of like having another reading copy kicking around. Uh, and I've like, I've literally just given it to people where I'm like, hey, you should read this. It's like one of my favorite comics of all time. Um, Ron Mars and I will both cite that as our favorite Doctor Strange issue uh, wow. for damn good reason. And then like two, I want to say two issues later, Paul Smith draws an issue that is kind of a retelling of Dr. Strange's origin. Dr. Strange is doing a, an interview with a television reporter and they use it as a framework for him to essentially retell his origin. 
And um, Paul Smith draws it, and it's just godlike. Like, so every page is iconic. It's, like, burned into my brain. Hmm. And so it's a wonderful kind of reestablishing of the character with a couple great little twists that keep the narrative rolling and a fun twist at the end of the story that that's surprising and delightful and just pays off so well. And it's drawn immaculately. Like, Paul Smith is one of those artists who every issue he drew at Marvel was one of my favorites. His storytelling is so good. His staging is perfect. His body language, the expressions on characters' faces. Like, it's a, every issue he does is like a masterclass. I feel like people could learn so much from it. And that's, you know, just another issue in this Doctor Strange run. And it's unbelievable. <laughs> and so, I again, it, you know, your... The nostalgic part of my mind is like, well, then I would love to use those same villains that were used in those issues because they're my favorite. It's like, well, if I'm going to use them, I better have something new to do. I can't just retell that story, right? Because right. otherwise, what the hell am I? I'm never going to approach that issue or I'm never going to tell something with the same kind of resonance if all I'm doing is trying to pick up the crumbs of that issue and, and refold it together, you know? Right. So far better to sort of look and go, well, why was that emotionally resonant? Why did I love that story so much? And what can I do that is emotional rather than saying the same emotions or, you know? Right. So who would and that's, be... And that's what you need to learn from it, right? Right. Yeah. So who would be the artist of choice, whether it would be Spider-Man or Doctor Strange? It could be um, for, for the sake of the book to say like that would make sure. me and this artist would be the right team or it could be nostalgia. Uh, um, so, you know, Paul Smith, cause what right. the hell, why would I, why would I not say <laughs> one of my favorite artists of all time? Right. Um, but like in a modern era, I think either, uh, you know, my buddy Max Dunbar, mm-hmm. cause I would love to see his design sense and go unfettered on Dr. Strange. And I know he could do the most dynamic and fun kind of Spider-Man or, um, or Joe Matarera. Cause when Ooh, Joe was at his yeah. peak, man, holy crap. That book was so fun, and and his his X Men stuff was wonderful, and Battle Chasers was wonderful, and I know he would never do a monthly book again, but wouldn't that be fun? That would be very yeah. fun. A Jim Zub Spider Man yeah. book, I think. Ooh. I would I would well, have a lot of fun what, reading that. Wouldn't that like what was crazy to me was when Joe Mad wrapped up X Men, all he wanted to do was Spider Man, and Marvel wouldn't give him Spider Man. That's crazy. And he said it in multiple interviews, like I want to do Spider Man, and you're like. Look, your hottest artist is telling you what he wants to do. And people will buy that. Give it to him. Yeah. Like, just give it to him. Like, you know, holy crap, guys, what are you doing? For sure. I don't know who was the decision maker at that point, but woof. It was a messy time. Yeah, that's that's just before they what? Gave the rights to to Sony to save their company. Maybe if they I think uh, so. Right? Yeah. They they dropped the ball you know, on a just lot of things. Crazy tons, right? But but I, you know, anyways, point is, um, yeah, that would be I think it would be a ton of fun. I like uh artists like as much as, you know, there are artists who do staggeringly realistic looking artwork, I tend to fall more into I would love to have something a bit more exaggerated, a bit more stylized, a bit more dynamic. That's something that makes comics not just feel like I'm looking at snapshots of photographs or film. You know what I mean? Right. And so I tend towards artists who have got a little bit more of a stylized approach when I'm choosing someone. Like if I have the ability, and I don't often, most of the times an editor will come to me and they'll say, oh, we're thinking of putting so-and-so on the book. And I will adjust my 
writing to try and lean into their strengths. Like that is such an important part of the writing process for me is not wherever possible. I don't want to write a script if I don't know who's drawing it because I will write it differently. I don't just want it to be one size fits all. Hope you like my script. You know, like we are collaborating to make this thing. So let's make it together, you know? So wherever possible, it's like, I want to get on the phone with that person if I don't know them, or I want to touch base with them again. And if I do know them and be like, what are you most excited about drawing? And if they tell me they want to draw dinosaurs, like, man, let's get some friggin' dinosaurs in there or whatever, you know, like. That's, that's such like, a good attitude to have, because again, some people feel like this is the story and you better draw it because that's why yeah, you're, you're hired to draw what my story is. Get it right. No, you're not the art robot. That's a terrible attitude to take about this stuff. I want this to be something that we both walk away incredibly power, you know, like, like pumped about and that we're super proud of. And the easiest, best way to do that is for me to know what you're pumped about and why, you know, or I can, if you don't know what you're pumped about, let me tell you what I'm excited about and see how you respond. Right. So that if I can get you hyped, you can't wait to draw that moment I just told you about, or you can't wait to see the little pieces as they unfold. You know what I mean? Right. Right. And, and that's, you know, part of my job is not just to tell a story, but it's to be a communicator, to communicate to the editor, to communicate to the reader, to communicate to the artist. If they don't know why something is cool, I haven't done my job. Right. Yeah, because that the whole point of collaboration is sometimes what they want to do sparks an idea that you didn't know that you always had. It's like, yep. now now I got a dinosaur story I didn't know I had. Boom, 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 right. Boom. And, and, and something as simple as someone just, if it's a team book, you know, yeah. who, which character is your favorite? Okay. Like I'll give them, like everyone's going to get their moment. Right. And if I do my job well, by the end of this, hopefully you're a fan of everybody on the team. But if I know going into it, you already love so-and-so like, let's do it. You know, Sean Isaac and I were, um, we did a monsters unleashed, uh, issue of, of the Avengers And at the time, Mark Wade was writing Avengers, so Spider-Man was on the team, amongst other people. Okay. And Sean was drawing the book, and he's like, oh, my God, I've never done an official Spider-Man drawing. You know, I've done fan art, I've done, but I've never done Spider-Man. And I'm like, yeah, man, isn't this going to be cool? And so I opened the issue with Spider-Man doing Spider-Man stuff. And he basically hears about stuff that turns into the rest of the plot for the issue, and eventually the rest of the Avengers show up. But the opening is three pages of pure Spider-Man. Because I wanted to give Sean, like, I just wanted to feed his excitement for drawing, you know, Marvel's flagship character. Yeah. And, and those moments could be like auditions for an artist. Right. If yeah. I, you know, if he does a, an amazing job and someone in the spider office sees it and is like, why aren't we getting this guy to draw Spider-Man? Like, I distinctly remember when Jim Lee was drawing uh, Alpha Flight and then he was doing Punisher War Journal. And on Punisher War Journal, they did a two-part thing where Wolverine showed up and everyone went, Oh my God, this guy draws the best Wolverine. Right. Next thing you know, he does a fill in issue of X-Men and everyone goes, Oh my God, this guy draws all the X-Men. So cool. And next thing you know, he's the regular artist of the X-Men, right? Like I, you know, it's pretty easy to see that, that thread. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's very cool that you, you gave that, uh, Sean an opportunity to do that. Very cool. Um, thanks man. I really enjoyed Wayward. I enjoyed Thank traveling you. to to Japan and Ireland, and Steve Cummings' art is just beautiful in it. Where does your love yeah, for he's Japan? Stellar. 
Where does your love for Japan come from? Um, I, you know, it's a really corny cliche kind of answer, but it's so true. Like, uh, I watched a bunch of anime and, and read <laughs> a bunch of Japanese comics and had that sort of feeling of, you know, whenever, um, I was a kid and I would see books about mythology, mm-hmm. the Japanese, you know, kind of stuff felt so different, it, you know, it felt so unexpected. And there was just interesting, the architecture and the artwork and the the history and the armor and all that stuff looked so cool. And so I couldn't help but kind of get pulled into it in that way. And then, you know, once you kind of dig deeper into everything from the animation and the video games and the comics, I was like, man, I feel like there's this whole entire world of entertainment that I was just not aware of before then. And I want to know more about it, you know? And so um, when I started working at the Udon studio, and obviously that studio is built off of, you know, uh, Japanese anime and manga and that art style that the studio became really well known for bringing to North American comics. Um, The chance to work with Japanese clients and then eventually my boss saying, okay, we got to go over there and, and take meetings with these companies. Come with me. And I'm like, oh my God, I get to travel to Japan for work. Uh, let's go, you know? And the first time I went, I was hooked. I was just like, oh my God, it's all the th- the things I wanted and more. Uh, we had an absolute blast. And I was like, I got to... I got to do this again. And I had no idea it would turn into, <coughs> I've, now been, I've now been to Japan like a dozen times, wow. you know? Fantastic. Yeah. Um, what would you, what advice would you give to someone who was interested in traveling to Japan? Uh, it's, you know, obviously notwithstanding current COVID, whatever, but let's say before that, or, you know, after that's over, I'm sure we, most of that will slip back to the way things were in the past. Um, it's way, way, way easier to travel there now than it was when I started. And that's because of uh, the emergence of, of Wi-Fi. Um, like nowadays, all you need to do is you sign up for, and you can do it right at the airport when you arrive, but it's even easier if you do it before you arrive. You can sign up for something called portable Wi-Fi and you rent this little, um, it's like a little black box that you carry in your jacket or your pocket and you rent it by the week, and it's basically a really strong Wi-Fi signal, so you'll have internet everywhere. Like, you'll have internet up in the mountains, you'll have internet on the subway, everywhere. And so it means you always have an internet connection, which means you always have, um, you know, Google Translate and Google Maps in your pocket. That's so cool. And that is like, changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, because when I, first few times I went to Japan, we would have internet only in our hotel room, So we would kind of had to plan our whole day out in the hotel room and write down directions and make sure we knew exactly where we were going and not stray too far because you didn't know if you'd be able to ask for directions and you didn't know where you'd kind of end up. And as Wi-Fi became more and more universal around the cities, the easier it became just to kind of explore and to go off path or off schedule and just try stuff, you know, find a funky little restaurant tucked away in the middle of nowhere or, or get off at a random subway stop and explore. And, and the minute you could do that, it just felt like, you know, the country was our oyster. Like we could just go anywhere and do, do anything, you know? Yeah. That's so cool. And you never felt like you were, Oh, I'm screwed now, you know? Yeah. Um, 
with Wayward, you, I heard you say that Steve Cummings based a lot of the scenery off of real locations. Is that yes? Am I, it felt like it while I read the book, and it just gave a little bit more of a gravitas to those moments when there were fight scenes, knowing like this is some someone can look out their window and see this. Yeah, this yeah, is really. Yeah, cool. we wanted you know one of Stephen's sort of goals when we were coming up with the book, and even the the pre-wayward, like his own thoughts about it would be cool to do a book set in Japan was that, you know, every time he would see Japan in, in North American kind of pop culture, it was always like either Akihabara, like anime town stuff, or it's like ninja temples and whatever. And he's like, yeah, some of that iconic imagery is part of Japan, but it's sort of like saying the only things there are in New York is the statue of Liberty and the Empire State Building and Central Park. And that's it. There's no, like, there's there's no other boroughs. There's no other neighborhoods. There's no other culture. Yeah. It's these three locations and you wear them out. You know what I mean? And it's right. like, so what if we went to these other places? What if we showed you just little out of the way spots that are also very much Tokyo, that are also very much Japan? And, and not necessarily have to point them out. Just use them. Just use them as they are used. Right. You know, you can get off the train at almost every stop in Tokyo, and it's a place that has its own little distinct culture to it, and it has its own feel. And the architecture is a little bit different, and the the sites are a little bit different, and the little cultural touchstones are different. And so it's like, how many of those can we use in a really organic way while telling the story? You know. Right. right. Yeah. Well, you, it, it, I. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed the adventure of those characters. It felt like a, a good old-fashioned '80s comic book with a team coming Thanks, together, man. but in a completely fresh setting. It wasn't in your typical yeah. New York City or and, and, LA. And we dragged them through the muck, like you yeah. Know, in the original outline, at the end of the first story arc, at the end of issue five, they do all get together. And while I was writing it, I was like, "It's too easy." It's too easy. And so I literally called Steven up and I said, I'm changing the end of issue five. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, they're not going to get together. It's all going to blow up. And he's like, what? I'm like, I think I want to hold off on getting the crew together until like the end of, of the second arc, because everyone expects like the Scooby gang equivalent. Like everyone's just going to start hanging out. Yeah. I don't want it to be easy on them. I want to make this harder. And he's like, okay, I trust you. And so I literally blew everything up. Like at the end of issue five, a building explodes and half the team goes missing. And that's the end of our first arc. And it's like, what the hell, man? This is supposed to be the team coming together. And it's like, nope, it's not what you think. Like, it's not going to be easy and we're not going to make, we're not going to give these characters the easy out. We're going to constantly push them and push myself to try and tell a slightly different story, you know? Yeah, and, and, I, and uh, I got invested in that. That was an important goal for me. I got so, invested yeah. In, in the when the team splits and everyone's in their pairs, I love yep. when those type of things happen in in a story because you really the world opens up, but then you really get to zero in on who these people are. When when right. you're in a full room all together all the time, you don't really get to see that. Yeah, and and it was fun for us to to build those dynamics, and you know sometimes um, different characters would pop into it, and Stephen would tell me how much he was enjoying drawing a particular character or their power set, and I'm like, oh, just like with you know my work for higher stuff, oh, you're enjoying that? I'll do more of it. Like let's if you're having fun with it, let's lean into it. Like let's let's I assume that if you're having fun with it, readers are going to have fun with it. So let's go. You know, yeah. let's make this as, as dynamic as in, and interesting. And, you know, he, I remember Stephen and I had a conversation 
where we were like, well, what are the other, like, you know, should we have more teenagers show up and what powers can they have? And, and so we started adding new characters to the cast based on kind of funky things that he was thinking about that we would have these conversations about. And, and that was, I think, again, it helped him to feel grounded and, and, dedicated to the book because we were doing it together yeah or he would tell me oh man you know my wife and i because he lives over there he lives in yokohama so he would he's like i went to tokyo and we went to this neighborhood i've never been to before it's so cool i want to use it and i was like yeah send me the google earth link and we, i'd literally like tour around the streets and he would tell me about how that neighborhood was really cool and I was like, let's use it. All right, let's do this. And we'd use part of the story there. And then the next time I'd go to Japan, I'd go to that neighborhood. That's cool. And I already felt like I knew it sort of because I toured around digitally and, and yeah. told bits of story there, you know? Yeah, that's so. I, I kept that in my mind as I read the book when you had shared that anecdote. And it just added a certain element to the experience and the paneling designs that Steve had put into some of those uh, moments were really, really cool and engaging. Yeah, it was Thanks, great. Man. Yeah, it was it was just a such a fun book to do and a really, you know, different challenge for me as a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as possible trying to build off of and go, okay, here's a traditional Japanese legend or or a spirit or a creature. How can we reimagine or how is it changed in through the lens of a modern world? What aspects stay the same and what aspects are going to have to give way to modern convention in order for this to function? And that was a really fun challenge for us, you know, like, um, and, and, you know, Zach Davison, who's the guy that he would write the essays in the back. Uh, you know, he's a professional Japanese translator. He lived in Japan for years. He knows the culture really well. And he's married to a Japanese woman and like, we would talk as well about what are these aspects of Japan or he would read over the stories and he would remember little anecdotes or things that he had experienced and be like, Oh, you know, this crazy thing that happened. And like, Oh, that reminds me of a thing that happened to me when I was over there. Or Steven would sort of back us up and go, Oh yeah, that's because of this. And he would tell us some cultural point and we're like, okay, we got to use that somewhere. Like that's, that's gold, you know, or just little things. Like I remember, uh, I talked to Steven and I, you know, I just casually said something about, you know, Rory's going to school in the fall. And he goes, oh, fall, you know, school doesn't start in the fall. I was like, what? No, it starts in April. And I was like, oh, huh. well, all right, then we're going to start the school year in April. Like yeah. something as simple as that. If you get it wrong, people that live there know. Yeah. And they'll be like, oh, clearly you're just, you know, prescribing North American assumptions on this. Right. Yes. It didn't you feel know? like that. That's that's a very yeah. good point. Yeah, you didn't just use it and Americanize it, but you just kept their yeah. backgrounds and their settings in this. Yeah, I get you. And sometimes stuff I would take for granted, like I um, in I think like issue six or something, I show um, one of the characters getting ready for school, and I I just casually said, oh, you know, like do a montage of panels, like have her grabbing a shower and picking up her lunch and heading out the door, and Stephen just messages me back and he goes. 99% of Japanese people would not have a shower in the morning. They they have a bath in the evening. And it's like, oh, right. And he goes, yeah, we're not doing that shower. I'm like, oh, okay. Not a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. you just, you know, get it you right. You get it right. Like, yeah, you get you get yeah. a taste of the culture for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple more rapid questions just before we wrap up. I'm going to let you go now. Sure. But I I assume that you've read these books because you said that you're an avid reader. 
Wheel of Time series or Game of Thrones? Um, so weirdly, I have not read them to their you know conclusion or well, I mean, Game of Thrones isn't over, but you know what I mean. Um, both of them are really, really dense, and they're definitely what I would think of as high fantasy. And I'm generally more of a fan of uh, pulp fantasy or what I jokingly call low fantasy. Like high fantasy is all like characters of destiny and big, big magic. Right. And although I love D&D, weirdly enough, um, I like pulp fantasy more when it comes to my fiction because the stakes feel more grounded. Like, you know, characters fighting for survival in a Conan style mm-hmm. does more for me than like, the chosen one grabs the magic sword of Gablui and okay. will save us from the darkness, you know, kind of thing. Gotcha. So like I, I read a bunch of those when I was a kid growing up, um, like Dragonlance and I read, um, you know, Shannara and, and um, you know, David Eddings and, and like all these different authors. And I thought they were pretty good and I enjoyed them, <clears throat> but generally I was always more of a pulpy, you know, Robert E. Howard or Fritz Lieber kind of reader okay. than I ever was like a George R. R. Martin, uh, you know, or, or, or whatever. So of the two, probably say Game of Thrones because it's more vicious to the okay. characters. Okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that, that Wheel of Time's bad. I'm actually watching the show and it's pretty good. Like it, it feels, you know, a little on the nose because it's using a lot of the, um, the fantasy tropes you know, mm-hmm. but the, the show looks pretty good and the stories are carrying along and I'm like invested enough in the characters that I'm going to continue to watch it and see how it all plays out. Yeah. It hasn't like lost me by any way. So I'm kind of like, okay, that's cool. And it's something I can watch with my wife and we both kind of, you know, every so often because of the nature of, of the stories, they're a little tropey and we kind of look at each other and roll our eyes a bit, but on the whole, I think it's well done. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, what's impressive about the world building is that if you're able to get those multi-threaded stories with all these different factions and families and loyalties and make sure that we can follow them all, but also get that feeling of complexity, that's yes. a damn difficult thing to do in any kind of storytelling, right. let alone when you also have the burden of world building, where you have to now teach me what is different about this world and make me understand how magic works or how the politics work or, or anything, you know? Right. So I, it always drives me crazy when people are like, Oh, fantasy is easy. Cause it's magic and you can do anything. And it's like, if I don't care about the characters, it doesn't matter how much magic there is. Absolutely. You know? yeah. if, if there isn't a feeling, an emotional quality or a, a sense of wonderment and engagement, it doesn't matter. All that, those trappings mean nothing. And in some ways it's harder because you have to now, not only give me all the emotional stuff of a regular story, you also have to teach me what is different about this world yes. and make me understand it. Yes. Yeah. No, that it, it's very true because you're, you're also coming up with things that, oh, anyone could just come up with stuff. Yeah, but there has to be a rule to it. For, there's got to right. be a consistency. And then you could just right. write yourself into a corner if you, if you just think it's easy. For sure. Right. And well, and that's where a lot of fantasy stories kind of drop the ball is they'll just fall back on prophecy or they'll fall back on magic, magic, magic. And you're like, no, not good enough. Like, I don't care. Make me care. Make yeah. me want, you know, to see these characters succeed or fail or or whatever. Make me hate the villains and make me love the heroes or whatever, you know? Like, you still got to do that heavy lifting. Yeah. Last one. Favorite movie from the MCU? 
Ooh. Um, I go, I waffle back and forth. Um, it's probably a tie right now between Winter Soldier and uh, Ragnarok. Okay. Okay, good picks. Um, yeah, it's Winter Soldier you know, is mine. I, yeah. Yeah, Winter Soldier is stellar. Like, it's the most... Because like the the Avengers movies are are a wonderment of yeah. pop culture extravaganza, and the scale of them is unstoppably huge, and I love them. But because there's so much stuff flying around and so many things that need to function in order for the story to move forward, they can be a bit of a um, like a, like a sensory overload. And it's like Winter Soldier feels grounded. The stakes are awesome. The characters are incredibly compelling. It's emotional. It's action-packed to hell. And I always care about what's on screen and why. You know what I mean? Uh, and it, it just, the, the tension is wonderful. It's so, so, so well-tuned mm -hmm. and just plays the audience in the best way possible. Uh, and then Ragnarok is such a fun ride And it is just joyous and ridiculous, yeah. but still manages to eke out a lot of emotion. Yeah. And Taika Waititi has this crazy quality where he can make you laugh and then make you wistful in the span of seconds. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and the writing is really, really good. And you, you have characters that have never felt so rich and um, enjoyable to see on screen. Like... I thought Chris Hemworth was a good choice for Thor. And then after Ragnarok, I'm like, no, he's phenomenal. Like yeah. he's funny and he's charismatic and he's engaging and he's so compelling in that film. Right. And you feel the, the weight of the responsibility that he's taking on and the fears that he has. And at the same time, you're giggling at the grandmaster and all the stupidity playing out in front of him. You know what I mean? Like that film, yeah. we just watched it like a couple of weeks ago. So that also probably helps. But um, it feels weirdly effortless in the way that it frames its narrative and the way that it pays off its emotional uh, arcs. Uh, and that like, like Winter Soldier is a, like a clock, like it's a finely tuned machine and you can see it just clipping and clicking along in a beautiful way. And Ragnarok is like a crazy clockwork monstrosity. Like it's just silly and, and bonkers and it's delightful and yeah. it is delighted in itself and wants to show you it all, you know? Right. Yeah, I know. Good, great picks. I love those films myself. Yeah, I think they're the most comic. I think it's also the most comic booky. Like it kind of revels in the absurdity of the of the design and the artwork of yeah, comics. Yeah, that's true. That's very I didn't yeah. like it when I first saw it because of my theater really? experience. It was I think I was expecting more drama and I didn't Sure. And then there was a person who laughed at every gag in the theater oh, very man. loud and it just made me yeah, like yeah. I can't enjoy the story because you're just I I'm not watching a Fairly Brothers movie, but I feel right, like right, I right. am. So when I watched it on my own and I took the 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 whole experience in you know, privately, it was, I, I right. saw what people saw. Way it, better. Yeah, Way yeah. better. Sometimes I, um, you need a second go around. Guardians, yeah, the first Guardians of the Galaxy is way up there for me as well. Me too, yeah. I think that that movie is rocking and super, super strong. And, you know, the, the incredible ability to take what are ostensibly some of the most obscure characters in the totally. Marvel Universe. Yes. And to make them A-listers in one movie. Incredible. To make them absolutely intrinsically... A-listers that every single person on earth recognizes and loves. 
Yeah. That is a hell of a feat. Very yeah. much. Very much so. Yeah. So what's what's next for you? Where can fans find your your whatever you're working on now? You're off of Conan. Is there sure. something lined up next that you could tell us about? Um, I've got a bunch of stuff. Li- it's so funny because if you'd have asked me like four weeks ago, uh-huh. I would have actually told you I was in one of my lightest writing periods of the last like six years. Like everything, I was in this waiting mode where I had some pitches in and I wasn't sure if any of them were going to go. And, you know, I just didn't know what my 2022 was looking like. Yep. And then all of a sudden everything kicked in. So I have a lot. (laughs) So I'm doing, uh, currently coming out, um, there's still issues of Avengers Tech On, which is this fun and super weird, um, combination project with Bandai Namco and Marvel where they made this line of toys that are essentially like Avengers meets Power Rangers and we're sort of leaning into all the crazy tropes of Sentai kind of shows which are the you know special effects costume shows in Japan Mm -hmm. and so it's funny when uh you know sometimes I think some people have picked it up and they read it and they're like oh this is like really weird and 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 you know this doesn't always, this doesn't read like a Marvel comic. It's like, no, it's not supposed to. It's supposed to read like these weird, funky kind of Japanese special effects shows. And that's what I really leaned hard into uh, on it and had a ton of fun doing it. And the art by uh, Jeff Cruz, who goes by Chamba, uh, he's friggin' incredible. He's this artist who I never feel like has gotten his mainstream due. And he's just been able to kind of let loose on this book and and make something really special. And the the fans that love that kind of style of of power rangersy kind of over the top drama they're really digging it and i had a ton of fun working on it and the bandai people have been a ton of fun to collaborate with so there's that um and then there's dungeons and dragons mindbreaker which is the sixth mini series i've done for dungeons and dragons since fifth edition DD launched back in 2014 this brings a lot of our plot lines to a head um and it also acts as a bit of a soft prequel to the Baldur's Gate 3 video game that is um, coming, well, it's on early access already on Steam, but I don't know the exact release date on it, but we actually are are kind of digging into some of those plot lines, but in a way that you can come to it fresh and just read the comic and enjoy it as well. Um, And that's been a real joy to work on. Obviously, I love Dungeons & Dragons and getting to make official stuff for D&D is always a thrill. And I really feel like I've, you know, been able to build up a cast of characters that our readers seem to love and they're pumped to see what what trouble they get into next. Um, trying to think of other stuff that has been announced. Oh, there's a, uh, a one-shot Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons uh, thing that comes out, I think, in March. No, February. And it's um, called The Me Seeks Adventure. And so if you watch Rick and Morty, there's this thing called Mr. Meeseeks. It's like this weird servant that pops out of a box. Uh, so I imagine what would happen if one of those showed up in the world of Dungeons and Dragons mm-hmm. and how much chaos it could cause. And it's just this weird, weird story that I convinced Wiz of the Coast and, and Adult Swim that we should do. And they mm-hmm. were totally down for it. And uh, Troy Little, the artist, is like unleashed on this book. He draws some of the craziest two-page spreads I have ever asked anyone to draw. And uh, we had an absolute killer time on it. Um, and then everything else is like, has not been announced yet, I think. Okay. So I've got like three Marvel projects lined up for next year. 
Very, very, I have, very good. Uh, I, I, yeah, I have more D&D stuff, and I have another Rick and Morty project that has not been announced. Very so cool. that will keep me pretty darn busy. Yes. When those do get announced, hopefully you can come back on and we could talk about them. But thank you so yeah. much for spending so much time with us tonight. It's, it's so kind of you. Jim, may all My your pleasure. dreams come true. The rest Thanks, of them. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Cave of Solitude. Uh, Stay tuned for more episodes as the year wraps up. We're going to have some cool guests showing up on the show. And make sure you follow Jim Zub on all his social medias that you can find him on. Jim, is there a way to a a specific address for any of them? Or is it just Jim Zub? The easiest is just go to jimzub.com. And that's sort of my landing page. That's got links to all my social media, you you know, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. So that's the easiest because that way you don't have to hunt everything down. It's all there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned for more and stay safe.